We're, we're, we're jumping back into the book of Acts. You can, if you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. And let me just say this. The book of Acts is really about to take off with a lot of mission and a lot of church planning. The church has begun to engage outsiders with the gospel, and, and God is powerfully moving already. And, and as this message begins to spread and more and more people get exposed to the gospel, there's something else that begins to happen in the church. It's persecution. Uh, they've already had a little bit of persecution, but the, the amount of persecution that's going to ramp up in, in the early church next to the advance of the gospel, it's about to go on hyperdrive with, which, with how much the gospel is spreading. And, and I ask myself this question, well, why is all of this happening to the early church? Well, well here's what I want to make sure we know as we see them encountering persecution. They were not getting persecuted because they were loudmouth, brash jerks. Okay, it wasn't because the Christians were like, let me just tell you something. They, they, weren't, they weren't Twitter people. That's not why the early church was getting persecuted. They were getting persecuted. Like, like, and here's the thing that stands out. This early church is radically loving people. That they, are, they are serving people. They're going to the, to the neediest in their cities. They're going to the most outcasts, and they're welcoming them in. They're meeting on a regular basis. They're generous they're loving, they're kind. Who in the world would want to stamp out a movement like that? There's nobody that wants to stamp a movement out if all you do is love people and serve people and minister to the poor. You don't want to stamp that movement out. It wasn't the acts of service and the love of the early church that caused them to go into persecution. It was the gospel message. The gospel message was drowning out the service for some of the people in the cities. And they would hear this message. For the Jews, they heard this message. Listen, you're saved because of the work of Jesus. Your pedigree, your cleanliness, your obedience to the rules will never be good enough. You need Jesus. And when you have that message, it doesn't matter how much you serve, you're going to upset some people. And for the Gentiles, they were hearing something totally different. They were hearing, listen, there is only one God, one God, and he is holy and pure. And, and all these gods you're serving, none of them are real. None of them. And this, this life of immorality and debauchery that you were living, it is unacceptable to him. You have one hope and only one hope. It's the one true living God. You need to place your trust in Jesus. He's your only hope. And so when you hear that your, your goodness and your cleanness isn't good enough, and when you heard that doing things the way you've always done them, the way you want to do it, whatever you see fit, when you hear that's unacceptable, both of those groups are going to get very very angry. They're, they're going to get mad. They're going to get agitated. And it doesn't matter how much you serve or how kind you are or how welcoming you are, that message will make some people angry. At least that's what was happening in the early church. So this message is exploding all over the place. So let's jump in to see how this persecution ramps up in the early church. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So here's Herod. This isn't Herod the Great that you know from Luke chapter 2 from Christmas. This is, this is a different Herod. This is his grandson. This is Herod Agrippa. Herod the Great had, 
had died. That's when Jesus came back. That's the guy that dealt with Mary and the wise men, and he killed all the kids in Bethlehem. The dude was a raging, murderous lunatic, and his grandson is now ruling in his place. He's, he's representing the Roman Empire in a large chunk of Israel. And this guy, on behalf of the Roman Empire, decides he wants to violently handle the Christians. We don't know why he got this in his head, but we do know that he realized something very quickly about manhandling the early Christians. It made him popular. So here's what he did. Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. So here's what's kind of going on. Uh, this guy, Herod Agrippa, he's, he's a political guy. He loves, he loves all the power and influence he can get. And he quickly realizes that once he kills James and starts targeting the leaders of the church, the Jews that he is ruling over get really, really happy. They like it. it. It gives him more influence. It gives him more popularity. It gives him more power and control of the people. It's going to make these. It's going to give him tons of favor with the people that he rules. And here's what I think is happening in his head. He's like, listen, if I kill enough of these Christians, I'm going to have even greater and greater and greater influence. And one day they'll probably say I'm the greatest king that ever lived. I mean, that's what Herod is going for. He wants influence. He wants power. This is all politically motivated, and he is literally playing into the hands of his constituents, and he's murdering Christians. And he, he murders James. And listen, he has this plan. He's like, listen, if they love James, wait till I get a hold of Peter, the dude that's walking on water, the guy healing people, the guy that raised that lady back from the dead. Like, I'm going after one of the big dogs. I'm going after Peter. So he arrests Peter, and, and like any really good, slimy politician that, that Herod would be, he wants to make a very public spectacle of this. He doesn't want to kill Peter in private. He wants it in front of everyone. So he picks the time of the unleavened bread. That's Passover time. That's when Jerusalem is jam-packed with the most Jews. And his plan is like this. Listen, when this all ends, I'm bringing Peter out in front of as many people as possible, and I'm going to kill Peter, and all of them are going to love me for it. That's his plan. Now, now listen, I don't like this plan. I can't even imagine what that's like for me if that's what's happening here in our city of Tallahassee. That's so foreign to most of us. But that is not foreign to most of the believers in the world and most of the believers in Jesus that have lived throughout all of history. Like it is a normal thing for followers of Jesus to have experienced persecution and threat and maybe even death. We, we're blessed. We, we don't experience that very often. So he takes Peter and he throws him in prison. And look at what he does in verse 4. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. Let me just hit pause. So, so he puts Peter in this high security situation because he knows there's not a lot of Christians. And here's what he does. When Peter's set up here, he's got four guards guarding him. Two are in the room with him. They're chained to each arm. And then two are standing at the door. That's kind of the situation. It's, it's, it's high security prison for Peter because he doesn't want any Christians to, got to kind of get him out. And, and the question I'm having right off of the bat is how will the early church respond to their leaders being killed? Like they've had mobs kill people. They've, they've had the Jewish people kill Christians. They, they've had that happen. But this is stepped up to a whole nother level. 
This is the Roman government now. Like this, this is the might of Rome that is now beginning to come after Christians. Like it's not just the, the Sanhedrin people. They had a check, they had checks and balances. They could only do so much. But now that the Roman government is involved, there's little to no protection for them. They can literally wipe them all out. And I'm just imagine with me, just for a moment. I want you to think through what that looks like for us as a church if that starts happening here tomorrow. Just, I know that's hard to imagine, but can you imagine with me? Imagine if all of a sudden the federal government is saying, we're done with Christians, we're not just going to find them, we're not just going to arrest them, we're going to execute them publicly and painfully. Let me ask you a question. How do you think we respond to that? Let me throw a couple scenarios out there. Uh, do we meet right away? Do we say, hey, let's take a couple weeks off. <laughs> like, let's, let's not all gather here on Sunday morning for sure right now. Like, we're taking several weeks off because we, we don't feel like all of us getting murdered tomorrow. Do, do we gather as much? How many weeks do we take off? Do, do, we, do we still do small group this week? Do we still gather together and say, I'm going to go meet at someone's home like, how many weeks do you need to take off before you're ready to re-engage with the church? I got, I got to be honest. I don't like that question. <laughs> if getting together with you costs me my life, am I still doing it? I, I think I know the answer for most of us. Uh, if getting together with you costs me a day at the beach, or a morning of duck hunting, <laughs> or some sleep, I'm out 100% of the time. And for these believers, it wasn't just convenience for them. They are literally being hunted down and murdered. What do they do? This is, this is crazy to me. I want you to read this. The end of verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We're going to find out later on. They kept meeting. They, they kept gathering in homes. That's all they had. They were still meeting every day in homes, and, and not just their regular meeting. They started doing prayer meetings. Now listen, here's how I know they are not Baptist. You ever been to a Baptist prayer meeting? Dude, you, you know you probably haven't. No one goes to Baptist prayer meetings. They're boring, and they're lifeless, and they're, like, if we do a prayer meeting, we ain't going to it. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm just being real, and, and here's this church right out of the gate, when Peter's in prison, they just don't have like a regular meeting. They have earnest prayer meetings. That word earnest stands out to me because uh, the idea is straining and stretching. Uh, one commentator said it looks, it's like what someone does when they're stretching a muscle. Like you're, you're pushing it and you feel the strain. You're pushing it to its limits where you can feel it stretching and pulling. Like there's something about this that's straining and reaching. This is, this is passionate, intense, and committed prayer. That's what they do. When this church gathers, they pray like this. The only other time this word is used when it comes to the church is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, where it says that we're supposed to love one another 
earnestly. Like the same way that we're supposed to reach and stretch and love one another in the church is the same way that we're supposed to pray and reach and stretch and call out to God to work. Now my initial thought was this. Well, yeah, of course they're praying earnestly. One of their good friends, their leader, Peter, is in prison, and he's probably about to die. I mean, he's already killed James. It's really easy to pray when death is right on the line, right? Like, I can pray real earnestly in that moment, right? But listen, I don't believe that's the only time they prayed earnestly. Every time in Acts you see the early church praying, it's powerful. Like they, they loved it. They loved to gather to pray, because it was real and it was passionate. They, they didn't care what you thought about their prayer. They, they weren't worried about saying it just right in front of, what's the words that I'm supposed to say? They weren't worried about being embarrassed because they didn't pray the appropriate way in front of everyone. They got together and all they knew was this, we're going to talk to God and he hears us. We're going to do that together and it's powerful and it's real and we want it more and more and more and more and more. Listen, this early church, man, I, I love it because this was not the first time they're doing earnest prayer. This is what they did all the time. It wasn't guarded. It wasn't lackadaisical. There was no facade, no concern about apparent appearances. It was real and passionate and powerful. And church, I, I got to be honest, when I read that, I just, I'm immediately convicted and I feel this call for all of us. For too long, for too long, churches have been weak and anemic with prayer. For, for too long, churches have been bored with it. And the result is that we have weak churches and weak followers of Jesus. The lifeline of the work of God in the church is not the pastor or the Sunday morning worship service. It's the people of God regularly encountering God through his word and prayer. That's the lifeline for the power of the church. It is not a flashy service or a slick pastor. Good news, we don't have either one of those. The, the power of the church is us as the followers of Jesus on our knees begging God to do what only he can do. And I'm asking questions. The reason I think this is super important for us is, is I'm praying that when we gather, we begin to to pray in ways like this. And here's why I think it's important. Because when I'm looking at Acts chapter 12 and the church enduring persecution, I kept asking myself this question in the chapter. What if that was us? What if that was us? What if that was us? Would we be a people? Would we stay true to Jesus if it actually cost us something besides time? Would we cling to him if our life was really on the line? If everything else was, would we really stick to him? Or if, if, if the pressure got turned up, are we all tucking tail and running? And in this chapter, I'm afraid that the answer for us, if we were honest, would be that we would bail. And I think the reason is that is when we look at something like earnest prayer, most of us don't know anything about that. And I'm asking, here's what I'm asking God to do in our, in our lives. I'm asking him to do a work in you, in your private prayer time, that we, you and I, become people who regularly, earnestly seek and pray after God. I'm talking about you really pray. Not boring, 
methodical, lifeless prayer. I'm talking about real, powerful, encountering God and actually talking to him prayer. I'm asking that we become a church, that you become a person who regularly prays to God. And here's what I believe. If we will pray privately, if you will regularly pray privately, then when we gather together, and several of us have actually been praying and talking to God, when you gather together with other people who've been walking with God, it does something different than the stale things we regularly experience in prayer. Now, I believe our group prayers are anemic because our private prayer lives are anemic. If we want to pray earnestly, it has to happen in our private prayer lives first. What we don't want is a bunch of hypocrites learning how to pray passionately in groups and never pray privately to God. I don't want to teach you the words to say, to stir emotion, to make it look like passion. No, it needs to be real prayer that you've experienced on your own. You need to pray when sin is coming after you. You see God actually show up and help you get out of sin you never thought you could get out of. You, you need to pray when you feel the pressure on you're not sure that you'll stay true to Jesus. We need to be people who pray and run to him and actually see him do that work. So, so I want to take a few moments just to teach us a few things that I think about ways we can stretch and reach in prayer. So I'm going to give you just a few things that I want you to try. You can write this down if you want, or you can just memorize it. I'm good either way. The first one is this. Uh, I think that if we want to reach and stretch in prayer, that we need to let the Word fuel and guide our prayer. We need to let the Word fuel and guide our prayer. Let me, let me tell you why I said that. Let me show you Psalm chapter 1, verses two and three. And here's what I'm saying this. I think the Psalms are almost like the prayer book of the Old Testament. It's prayer and worship in the book of Psalms. And Psalm chapter one is the intro to that, the foundation for all the other things. It's, it's not like the other Psalms. This is, this is the thing that's telling us why this book is so important. And what he says in verse two is this, talking about uh, the, the blessed man. He says this in verse two, but his delight, his love, his the thing he loves, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates. He chews on it. He thinks about it. He marinates in it. He loves the law. Say it this way. He loves the word so much that he's always thinking about it day and night. He keeps coming back. He may be working and gets a free moment and the word comes back over and over and over and over and over again. It, we need our prayers to be saturated in the Word. Look at what that does to you if that's what you do. If, you, if you're a person who delights in the Word and always is chewing on the Word, verse 3 says it makes you like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Listen, here's the picture it says. It's a tree that's planted by a river. It has a water source. It's got roots that go down deep into the Word of God. And if you will go deep into the word, it makes you solid and steady and fruitful. I love the fact that it says his leaf doesn't wither. Because guess what? Droughts come. Dry seasons come. But a tree that's planted by the river, a, a tree that has deep roots, when those droughts come, still has leaves. Listen, 
church, we're not going to have passionate prayer if we don't have hearts that are saturated in the word. What one writer wrote, a, this guy wrote a book on prayer, and he, he gave this thing that I thought was very, very helpful about prayer. Because I, I agree with him on this. If what I have to do is I just wake up in the morning and get out of bed and I have a cup of coffee, my heart doesn't just flip a switch on where I'm like, okay, I can do this now. Let's pray to God. I'm ready to rumble, right? Like, that's not how, even coffee doesn't wake my heart up. It may wake my mind up, but my heart is not there. And so if your little method of praying is just to wake up and think, well, this is why it's so hard, because I tried to pray when I first got up. I even had two, three cups of coffee, but the lights never came down from heaven. There was never this, ah. I was just like, oh, man, I have three cups of coffee, and I'm still going to fall asleep. Like, Listen, the way our hearts are awakened is by the word. So here's his, how he said for us to approach prayer. He said, first of all, you approach God. You say, God, help. That's it. That's all you got to say. And then what you do is you read the word. You take some time and you read the word to understand what it's saying. Then after you read the word, you take a few moments to meditate, to think, to chew on what you just read. What did you see about who God was in there that made him worthy of worship? Write that down. What did you see that he's calling you to do? Write that down. Did he convict you of any sin? You write that down. Did he call you to do anything? You write that down. Was there something that amazed you? You write that down. And those things that you see in the word, after you meditate on it, then you pray based on what you just said. So if you were doing Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, you would sit there and say, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And you would meditate on it. You would chew on it and say, do, do I do that? Do, do I love the word like that? Man, God, give me a heart that delights in your word. Like I want, I want to know you. You're worth it. Would you, would you do a work in me? Help me to love it. Help me to chew on it all the time. God, help me. Make me this person. Didn't you see, man, planted like a tree? God, I want to be stable and steady just like that. God, make me that. Make me produce fruit even when it's dry. God, give me everything I need. I need you. Help me. Like, be my life source. Make me a solid tree. Don't let me be like chaff in the next verse. Do you, you see how that's different than just getting up, trying to hit your knees with your list that's really long? And it feels like you're praying through an Excel spreadsheet. Listen, the way we get to passionate stretching prayer is we saturate ourselves in the word. When you read about the early church's prayer meetings, someone is always quoting something from Scripture. Every single time almost, they go, you know what, that reminds me of what I read in Isaiah. He says this, God, that's right, they were raised up against you, but you'd ordained that Jesus would die. You see that over and over and over again. They were saturated in the word, and that caused their prayer to be filled with passion. Let me, let me show you something else in Psalm 63 that happens when you're saturating yourselves in the word. Psalm 63, listen to this. And here's what I think he's saying here. It's not just saturating yourself in the word. It's staring at who God is in the word. Psalm 63 says this. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I'm, I'm, I'm looking passionately for you. My soul thirsts for you. My, 
My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see the desire there? You see the hunger? That's not boredom. And that's, that's crazy, passionate talk. That is this burning desire to say, God, I want you. I don't have enough. I want more. I feel thirsty. I feel hungry. I'm, I'm so hungry and so thirsty. I feel like I might pass out. Like that's, that's pretty intense language, got to be honest. Um, look at what he says in verse 2. So what does he do? So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Like, I I want to go see you in the sanctuary. See how big and strong you are. Verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I wanted to go see your strength and I saw your love. When I saw your love, it welled up in my heart and made my mouth just saying, dude, you're awesome. Your steadfast love, it's better than life itself, and that's why my lips are going to praise you. You need to understand, do you see what he did here? He was hungry for God, and he went looking for God, and when he saw him, it turned into praise and worship of God. That's what our prayers are like. So verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I lift up my hands. That's That's a prayer stance in the Old Testament. Like it went from longing to looking for God and seeing him. And when he saw him, it turned from praise to prayer. That's, that's the method. That's the approach. I think the Psalms lay out. Listen, if we want to be a people that stretch and reach for prayer, you don't want to have an anemic prayer life, we must be a people that saturate ourselves in the word. And when we're in the word, we're staring at who God is. We're seeing what he's like, and we're letting that stir our hearts to praise and then to prayer. It is not just an on and off switch. Church, maybe one of the reasons we stink at prayer is because we're starving ourselves of the word. Listen, if you're never in the word, if you're never, like, not just reading it, but encountering God and meditating on what you just read, you will rarely have powerful moments of prayer. You might have some. But you need the word to fill you and soak in you. And that needs to be the thing that fuels prayer in us. Seeing God glorified and lifted up in his word. That's how we do earnest prayer. But there's something else that we have I think we need to get in in prayer. And this is the one that's going to make you nervous. Because we definitely don't talk about this sometimes in church. We don't don't need... Sorry, we don't need to just let the word fuel and guide our prayer. We need to let the spirit empower our prayer. Listen, the Holy Spirit is deeply connected to the way we pray. Let me show you some verses to talk about it. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 says this. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So in other words, listen, the the Holy Spirit is helping us in our weakness. We're, We're frail. We don't know how to pray. And what does he say to do here? You need the Spirit to help you. And look at how he does this. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Here's what I think he's saying here in Romans chapter 8. One of the things that the Spirit does is he helps you and me pray. 
And there's these moments of prayer where you don't have the words to say. And all you can do in that moment is just go, (sighs) and I think what he's saying here is that the Spirit takes that sigh and translates it into the words of prayer that God needs to hear. In other words, that moment, you ever have that moment where you just, you don't even know what to do with the situation. You don't even know what to pray to God. And you're trying to pray, and all you can go is you just go, God, I just, I don't know. And the Spirit takes that and goes, listen, here's what he needs. He needs your power to be sustained. He needs grace. He needs protection from the lies of the enemy. He needs you to work in his heart. I don't even have to get the words right. Look at how gracious God is. I don't even have to get the words right. He gave me the Spirit, and all I got to do is just go, like stop, stop worrying about the words and let the Spirit do a work in prayer. Are you afraid of that? Does, does that make you feel weird? It might make me feel a little nervous. Like, hey, what, what is this? Like, here's what it is. It's a gift from God that you don't just pray with your brain. You also pray with the Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 14 says this. 14 verse 15. Paul says this. He says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I, sing, I will sing with my mind also. And was, he's saying this, you pray with the spirit and the mind. If you pray with your mind and without the spirit, it's lifeless words. If you pray with the spirit and without your mind, it's meaningless prayer. We need to be able to pray with both. And I believe the Bible says you have the spirit and you've got the word that you're saturating yourself in. There's the spirit helping you pray with passion and clarity, fixing the words that you get wrong. Finally, I want to give a couple practical things. I mean, I think those are practical, but you may not think they're practical. Let me give a few more really practical things. Number one, sometimes you need to change your approach. Like if prayer is hard for you, well, maybe you shouldn't pray reclined in your recliner every single morning at 6 a.m. Because you're probably going to fall asleep if you've got a good recliner. Like you, you need to change that. Maybe you need to go on a walk with God. Maybe you need to try your position. Maybe you try praying standing up or pacing in a room. Maybe you actually try on your knees face down before God or even laying completely in front of him, you've seen something about him in the word that's huge and holy. And that's not just good enough just to be calm about. You find yourself saying, I need to take my body and match up my heart feels. And you're laying face first on the ground praying to God. Change it up. And then finally, I want to say, just look for God to actually answer your prayer. I think one of the things that helps me at times be more passionate about prayer is when I actually see him answer. I mean, that moment when you... You know what I'm saying? Like, it may be something small, but when he actually answers, there's been times when I, I feel like sometimes the discourage of ministry, discouragement of ministry, it feels like heavy, right? Like, it, you ever have those moments where life, it just feels heavy, nothing's going right, all the conversations with your kids are going bad, the conversation with your spouse isn't going well, your work isn't going well, everything like, feels like it's unraveling and you try to pray and you're like, God, I just, do you ever hear anything I say? Are you ever going to work? And then all of a sudden there's these moments where you say, God, I just I need you to do something. And he may move in just the smallest little thing, but you see him actually move and answer. And take that moment and say, God, you, that was you. 
I know it's small, but you did it. I didn't think I would get through this day, but I'm putting my head on my pillow and I'm still here. Right? I, I didn't think we would get through that, but, but there was just a moment that you answered. You gave just enough grace. You gave just enough energy. You answered in just the right way. I mean, look for God to work and then celebrate it when he does. All right. Well, listen. I need to get back to Acts. Uh, that's a whole little called a rabbit trail sermon is what I just did right there. Because uh, the church is gathered together to do earnest prayer. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see what God does. Because this is awesome. Okay, Acts chapter 12. Here's what happens. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Like, I love this. The next morning, Peter's going to get executed, and it's not going to be pleasant. And the dude's sleeping. <laughs> Man, someone's got some faith. Or maybe he didn't know, but he probably knew. He's like, hey, man, Peter, I can hear the guards talking. Glad we're done with this after tomorrow. I don't want to be on these night shifts anymore because this dude's going to be done. Like They're not going to try to spare his feelings on this moment. This dude is somehow, he's sleeping, and he's probably going to be executed the very next day. This is, that's an answer to prayer from the church. I'm going to throw that down right now. If you can sleep in the face of execution, Jesus is doing something. Verse 7. So they're, they're all asleep. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. This is crazy. And a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. I love, I love the graph. It's like, hey, get up, man. It's like, I don't know if he kicked him. I don't know if he smacked him on the side. It's like, hey, Peter, come on. Wake up. There's light in the cell. I don't know how the guards didn't wake up, but God's doing a miracle, so we'll just go with that. So he says, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hand. And the angel said to him, dress yourself. Put on your sandals. And that's what he did. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. It's probably cold out. I don't know. He's like, get dressed. Let's go. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real but he thought he was seeing a vision. Like Peter thinks he's dreaming right now. Like it's so, it's so insane. It's so crazy. There's a, a warrior angel dude in my cell. Don't think a little white, like haired lady with wings or whatever they've got going on. You think like a warrior dude, smack him. Like, hey, bro, get up now. Let's go. Let's hustle. No, no, get dressed. Come on. Change your phone off. He's just walking like, what is going on? I haven't had coffee yet. Walking past guards, everyone's asleep. The gate opens up for the town or, or the fortress. And here's what happens. Verse uh, 10. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. So this is the best sleepwalking ever that Peter's ever done. He just, all of a sudden, when he realizes what's happened, the angel is gone and he's free in the city. He's not getting executed tomorrow. Like this is, this is insane. Church, God answers prayer. Now if you're Peter, what's the first thing that you do? I'll tell you what I do. I tuck tail and run. Like, it is vacation time to the some, some awesome island of Crete. I don't know where I'm going, but it's vacation time. I am out of here. I'm not, I'm not passing go. I am not collecting $200. I am going directly and straight out of town and out of the country as quick as possible. But that's not what Peter does. He, he can't just leave. There's some people that he loves that he needs to see. Now, you may be thinking, his wife and kids. We know he's a mother-in-law. He's got to go see his family. Look at, look at who he goes and looks at. Verse 12. When he realized this, 
he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. That's the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark. Where many were gathered together and were praying. Like, listen, what about earnest prayer? It may be two or three in the morning. Maybe 11 at night. I don't know what time they went to bed. But this is not like a 5 p.m. prayer meeting. It is late at night. And they're still praying. And he knows that the church is going to be gathered in this place. Who does he want to go and see? It's the church. He, he wants to go see his church family because he loves them so much. And they've got to know what God has done. They've they got to know how God has answered their prayer. He needs to make sure they know exactly what happened. I, I love what happens here, verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So he's knocking quietly because, hey, I don't know when the guards are going to wake up and find out I'm missing. I don't want to make a scene. Somebody wake up. It's late. I see the lamps. I know, some, I know you're praying in there. Come on. Like He's knocking, and this servant girl, Rhoda, comes out to answer. Uh, and here's what she does, verse 14. She, recognizing, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So she hears him knock and saying, hey, let me in. And she's like, it's Peter. Doesn't unlock the door, doesn't open the door, leaves it who's standing out there waiting for guards to pick him up. I don't know. Runs in, Peter's outside, Peter's outside. Like you can see the scenario. They're like, listen, dude, she needs a nap. What's, what's going on with Rhoda here? She's losing her brain again. Give her, who gave her coffee? She's too hyper. So they're sitting there saying that she's out of her mind, verse 15. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they, then they said this, it's his angel. That's a Jewish viewpoint that everyone had a guardian angel. And that angel could take your form at points. It's not his ghost, it's his angel. But Peter continuing knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. And I love this in verse 17. But motioned to them with his hand to be silent. He's like, hey, shh, just stop. I can imagine him showing up. There's like 30 people here. They're all, they've been praying for days for God to save Peter. They've been praying for days, and it's probably an explosion. Peter doesn't want the noise. He doesn't want the neighbors waking up. He doesn't want to tell them. He's like, guys, stop. Just stop it. It's just so real. I can picture him just going, just everyone zip it. They're finally quiet, and what does he do? He says this. Uh, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Listen, church, they got to see God answer in a way that they never expected. And Peter wanted all of them to know what God had done. He wanted them to know that God rescues. He wanted them to know that God can save. He wanted them to know that God answers prayer. He wanted them to know that God had worked. And God didn't just work by rescuing Peter. You see the rest of the chapter that God brought justice to Herod. That Herod dies and he's eaten by worms. It's, it's, a, it's a brutal thing. But, but here's what I want us to see, church. When a church is earnest in prayer, they see God do mighty things. When a people are earnest in prayer, they see God do things they never thought possible. So church, will, will we be that church? Are we going to be a people of prayer? Will you be a person that earnestly prays and seeks God on your own? Listen, I, I pray that you will be. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I want to guide us in a time of response here. I'm going to ask you to pray this way for ourselves and for our church. Would, 
Do you pray for God to make us a people of earnest prayer? Listen, maybe the thing that stood out to you is you've, you felt this thing burn in your heart. Man, you, you've placed your trust in Jesus, but you are anemic in prayer and you're negligent with the word. Man, would you ask God to forgive you and ask him to help you actually be hungry for him and for his word and make you a person of prayer? Maybe for you, the thing that stood out is the love that Peter had for his church family. The, Peter he, the people he goes to see is his church, his small group. Man, would you, if you haven't been connected in the church and you feel God calling you to that, would, would you do that? This week is a great time for you to connect and build community like this in the church. And for some of you here, all this talk about hungering for God and seeking for God, it, it hit your heart in a weird way. You, you realize you, you may have been religious or maybe not, but you've never had earnest hunger for God. And the thing that stood out to you is this, man, it's all been a facade for you. Listen, I want to tell you the good news. The good news is that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins and came back to life three days later. And he offers us deep relationship with him and a brand new heart. He will give you a new heart and the spirit. And all you have to do is repent of your sin and believe that he died on the cross for you and ask him to save you. That is it. Just ask him to save you. Listen, if you've been religious your whole life but you've never really met Jesus, can I encourage you right there in your seat? Would you ask him to save you today? In a moment, I'm going to close this in prayer. And we're going to sing one last song to God. And this is a time for you to do business with God. If, uh, if you need to pray in your seat, you can do that. If you need to speak to a pastor or a decision counselor, we'll be down front. If you want to pray at this altar, you can. Uh, but if you just want to pray and worship God, I pray you would sing loudly to him as an act of worship. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we want you to work. God, I'm asking you to work that we would be a people who are so passionate for you, we hunger and thirst and we feel like fainting if we don't get you. God, I pray you'd make us a people that pray because we're so hungry for you and so amazed by what we see about you in the word. God, I'm praying that we would see you work in ways that make no sense unless you've really been answering our prayers. God, I pray you do that work in us as a church. I can't make that happen. But I believe that you can. So I'm asking for you to work. God, in a moment, as we, as we praise you, God, I pray we would, we would sing to you in awe, that we would forget about the rush of going somewhere or the hurriness of our lives, whatever we've got, and we would turn our eyes and our hearts to you. God, I pray we would sing loudly as an act of worship to you as our King and our Savior. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.